even if you are in recovery or feel at the top of your recovery, that we're still human and we can we still have those moments where it's like, whoa, life is gonna face us and we just need to just take it one meal at a time. And it has it has been challenging. <laughs> Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, Moira Gorski, and so glad you are coming back to listen. It has been a... uh, we're entered into 2021. It was a wonderful year last year as I began this journey of um, trying to just give light to the, the struggles that others have and also the struggles of um, someone who's a caregiver who has someone in their life who is struggling with an addiction or a disorder. And I, as if you listened last year, I just love to bring you, I love to bring that hope to you. And many times I can do that by sharing with you stories from others who have been on this journey of an eating disorder or an addiction and have come out the other side quite beautifully, and they're helping others with what they've learned. And so today, I'm sharing with you and bringing to you um, a gal named Rachel Freeman. I'm so glad that uh, she has connected with me, and I can't wait to um, have you hear her story and, again, what she brings to the world. She is a she is a teacher at this point, a poet, a creator, and just someone who just loves life. And, you know, I love to hear that because I know in my own struggles as well as my daughter's, um, when you are deep in the midst of a struggle you're not really loving life too much. And you're really in quite a state of just not loving uh, a whole lot of things. So uh, before I go any further, um, Rachel, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled that you are here. Thank you for having me. I, I'm i really happy to not only be here, but I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Uh, I am too. And uh, that's something that so many say as they get through the hell of... Um, an eating disorder. And so again, I'm thrilled and I honor you for being able to put that hard work in to um, be here today with me. So as we always do, let's start out with the story. You know, let's start out how, and again, we don't share the down and dirty and all the gritty and all the, but, you know, just kind of like how did things get started for you as you started to struggle and kind of what that journey looked like and how it's bringing you, you know, to where you are today. My struggle slash journey literally began when I was, I mean, I want to say 12. It was probably a little bit before that. I started writing when I was seven because I didn't really feel like I could connect with anybody my own age. So to get out my feelings, I would put them on paper. But that kind of, even though that was an outlet, I did use food to comfort myself. And I, I say about 12 is when things really kind of took shape for my eating disorder. At 11, I became a vegetarian. I became extremely anemic. My doctor said, not only by prescribing me medicine, but told me that I should start drinking SlimFast because there were extra minerals. 
that I could get in the Slim Fast plus the other supplements that were from the dairy in the Slim Fast, which turned into breakfast and sometimes would turn into a meal replacement. I grew up in um, acting and modeling and was always up against really good friends of mine who were just naturally stick thin and I'm petite, but I've always had muscle. So just comparing my body to other kids and then also having casting directors tell me I was too pretty to model their line of clothes, which didn't make sense to a kid or having another costumer ask the photographer or having the photographer ask a customer why they were putting me in certain outfits because it just didn't match my body type. And like stuff like this would happen in front of me all the time. And so the Slim Fast turned into me saving my lunch money. So I would have a bunch of money to go shopping at the mall over the weekend, but I wouldn't be eating during lunchtime at school. So I would come home and then binge on either a huge plate of nachos or a big thing of pasta, like something that could have definitely been shared between two to three people. And that would be an after-school snack. And then I'd have dinner and it was just like one thing after another. And it was food, it was exercise. And then it was exercise and then food and then exercise and then exercise and then food and then exercise. I was in every single sport you can think of. I was captain. I was a cheerleader. I was in community theater, show choir. Like I did everything to escape what was in front of me and use those small times in between every recital or every practice to eat. But I never had this, like, I always had a relationship with food where I was either eating it because I needed to just have, get it in me because I had moved on to the next thing or I was just eating it to stuff down the feelings because I didn't know how to actually explain how I was feeling. So I would write everything down about how I was feeling, but then I would soothe with the food and I would escape by doing all these other activities and also escape through what my parents would think I was doing was healthy by running, but I would wake up at six in the morning in high school and go on a two mile run before school started for no reason. Like I did, I did not need to be doing all that exercise if I was in all of these other sports and whatnot. I basically hid my eating disorder until college when I was, I I'm Jewish and I went to a Catholic university and my dad sat me down at 20 and told me I needed to marry somebody Jewish. And I was super confused because I was at a Catholic university. We never attended temple it was just, there were so many identity issues and I was going through this identity crisis. I went on birthright. Um, it was a super Zionistic trip. I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody from my family when I got home because nobody had been to Israel except my grandparents who hadn't been there since the sixties. And then I just had a bunch of professors at this Catholic university who were trying to help me through this spiritual religious struggle And all it did was made me want to restrict food and run from my own problems. So that was my senior year of college. And by the time my senior year ended and the holidays rolled around, it was the first time I was back at home in four years. I had dropped a lot of weight, like I would say almost a third of my body weight. And I was very 
routine in what I was eating or not eating and how much I was exercising to the point where I was basically told by the doctor that I was not allowed to go to the gym for a year. I wasn't allowed to step foot in the gym. I was walking with a neighbor every morning. I wasn't allowed to do that. I was riding my bike to work. Like any time that I had free was used for exercise to rid myself of the very little I was putting into my body. I would go to sleep having heart palpitations, not knowing if I was going to wake up in the morning. I couldn't cry. Like my whole body was just depleted of everything. And I knew it got really bad when um, I went to go get my annual physical and they went to draw my blood. And it was literally like within the vial, it was just like, like nothing was coming out. And so they, they asked me to drink orange juice. I wouldn't drink the orange juice. Like it was awful. So I ended up getting into this art camp. It was like an adult sleepaway camp and it was international. It happened to be also close to where I lived and I met a bunch of people. I did a lot of self-exploration from writing and painting and my parents wanted to send me away to a facility at that time. But I, I just told them, I was like, I've been dealing with this for so long. I think I need a change of scenery. I need to not be surrounded by, I need to be out of my comfort zone, literally. I need to kind of take it upon myself to figure out what my needs are. And at that time, that's when one of the pieces that is in my book, I had performed it as a monologue. And it was a piece of poetry. I performed it as a monologue to about 45 people. And it was the first time in my life that I not only told one person, but I told the entire group of people. And it was so liberating. And from that moment on, I was like, this is what I need to be doing. I need to be telling my story to help other people because I know I'm not the only one in this room that can relate to this. And I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say like, I'm a hundred percent recovered because it's part of the journey. The journey is going day to day and at times meal to meal and going through this pandemic hasn't been easy considering like I live on my own. I am a full-time grad student. I'm a full-time special education teacher. And for the first time in my life, I had to literally stock up everything in my, in my house with food. And I had never done that. And I just, Remember looking, I took a picture of my freezer at the beginning of the pandemic and I sent it to my mom and I was like, I don't remember the last time I had this much food in my house. And at that point, it like something clicked and I was like, I'm at a healthy place where I can see this and I can internalize this and know how I feel. But there are so many other people that are feeling this at such a deeper level and they might have that food in their house and either they're going to binge it all. Or they're going to see that food and then they're going to be too afraid to eat any of it. So I need to just like get my story out there and let people know they're not alone and let people know that even if you are in recovery or feel at the top of your recovery, that we're still human and we can, we still have those moments where it's like, whoa, life is going to face us and we just need to just take it one meal at a time. and. It has, it has been challenging. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, like you said that, I mean, there's so many things I want to to touch on, but for sure. Yeah. This pandemic has been hard for most of us and those that are again, having those particular struggles, you know, I, I think the idea too, that, <clears throat> that I've discussed is just that if you're in a treatment facility, which it doesn't sound like you did event, you didn't <clears throat> really go to a formalized treatment facility, but it, if you are, or again, if you're in a disorder, it's like you're in this closed off place and you're not sure when you're going to get out or how you're going to get out or how it's going to really look. And I think at least for me, as I, as this happened and, you know, for me, like I started to feel that like, wow, this is something kind of like that my daughter has felt and others have felt when they're in a facility, you know, for their good and to get better, but they really don't, I mean, they're told what to do, who they can see, when they can see them and no, you can't do that. And you can't be by that person. And maybe we don't know when you're going to be able to see them and all that. And it's kind of like, wow, that's, that's a tough place to be in for one, but you know, your story is so, you know, similar to others that there is that as, as children have grown up and, you created your identity of being somebody that was athletic and was involved in all the things. And yet, even though you'd liked it, I mean, it became your identity, but it was also kind of what I heard from you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it just filled up your life, but you really weren't even sure who you are, even though you had this identity of being athletic and in the show choir and the, this and the, that, and the captain of all that there was Rachel, but really who was Rachel? You know, and there it's like I was just talking in a group yesterday about mindfulness and quieting ourselves down enough so that we can hear ourselves. But when we're so busy, that just reminded me of that. You were so it sounds like you were so busy. And even though that was Rachel, like where was Rachel? And really what, you know, because like you said a few times that you were kind of running away from what was right in front of you, and that was you. Yeah. But really, you know who was that and how were you feeling and how were you and were you able to kind of go from day to day feeling good about, about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I always had a lot of confidence growing up and I think that was because it had a lot to do with my placement in school, how like my academic achievement and everything. But I, I then lost my authentic point of where I was or who I was and what I was supposed to do with that. Cause I remember, I mean, to this day, I, I say like, I was born to be an entertainer. I was born to tell stories. I was born, but I don't think now I'm supposed to be telling other people's stories. I'm supposed to be telling my story. I'm supposed to be helping people who are going through similar things. And I didn't realize at the time when between high school and college, when I really just wanted to be out there auditioning for parts and auditioning for TV shows and movies, like that was a way for me to run away from who I was. And then I got into college and I became an activist. I be, I started doing a bunch of student movements and I be, I was extremely depressed, but I was depressed. I think more so because I was identifying with these movements because part of me needed that identification to something now, and I was having a hard time and struggling a lot with removing myself from those movements and removing myself. It was like a, um, an out-of-body experience most of my, my college because I was internally so depressed and I was pouring myself out and giving all this love and passion and compassion to these 
things that needed it when it was really me that needed it. And I can see that now. And even, even as a teenager and like pre-adolescent, like, as I said, I was, I was writing a lot. I was writing all my feelings down because I didn't know who to express them to. So I was only sharing my own feelings and thoughts with myself, which it's healthy. Yes. To have that outlet, but it's also healthy when you can share that outlet with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell, you know, I talk about, you know, being a mom of four kids who, you know, between the ages of 25 and, and 17 and social media coming into play and cell phones and things like that. And now I'm 57. And so grew up when we had a phone that was plugged into the wall and we usually had one, you know? And so if, Mary called me after school, you know, my mom usually answered the phone and gave it to me and said, here, Mary's on the phone. And so I pulled the phone into the other room. So I wasn't heard. And then I had the conversation and then I hung up the phone and then mom says, how's Mary? And so we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, so I saw it with my children as social media came into play in the cell phones, like, I don't know who my kids are talking to and talking to or texting or whatever. And so you're talking about that you, I mean, you wrote your feelings, you'll hear me on this podcast. I have fallen in love with journaling and writing and I love it. But you were doing that, but you weren't sharing that with anyone else. So no one knew to help you if you needed help, right? Mm -hmm. It was great that you put them down there, but you weren't sharing that with anybody. So no one really could help you. And during those teenage years, and like you said, being a model and being told you're too pretty, or maybe you're not the right size, or maybe you're too big, maybe you're too small, you're too pretty, you're not pretty. I mean, come on, teenage years are are confusing enough as it is. And then all of that on top of it. Yeah. And I, I'm at that age where I'm right at the cusp of when like instant messaging started, but cell phones came out right when I got into, or cell phones became popular without all the video messaging and all the other stuff, probably my freshman year of high school, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 18, but I did have instant messenger and like AOL, a dial up, all of that. And I remember I was, I I was a victim of cyberbullying for what it was at that time. And like, I had friends who would give out their passwords to other people who didn't like me or whatever the case was, and they would go on and they would like, just harass me on instant messaging. And so like, I tell I'm so extremely lucky and blessed that I don't have to go through like, I I'm 30, I'm going to be 34. And I don't have to deal with what kids have to deal with now, or even people in their mid 20s, like, I'm, I'm strong enough to understand and see through that social media is what that is. It's media for people who are being social and they're only showing the highlights of their life. And it has been challenging and it it has made me realize like throughout your life, you, as you're growing, you come into contact with different people for different reasons. And it's okay to let some of those relationships blossom and some of those relationships to be let go because your mental health and your self-care is the most important thing. And with social media, you sometimes it's just like you're blinded by what you're seeing. And then you're making those comparisons that are just not real. Like what the the casting directors were saying to me in my face, people are seeing that as a visual depiction on on a screen. And it's like, 
that's not life. <laughs> no, no. And pe- like you said, people get sucked into it and mm-hmm. this false sense of like that is life and then get into that comparison game, which is just the thief of all, mm-hmm. all joy. Well, and that was another thing like going through this. So I didn't go into a facility or a treatment center, but I was, my whole day was filled with like either art therapy, individual therapy, group therapy. I did um, OA. I, my best friend at the time was going through a heroin addiction. So I would go to AA, CA, NA, all of those things with her. And I, I picked and choose. I kind of made my own program that wasn't a real program, but like I got what I needed from what I needed. And doing that whole comparison thing um, at the time, now it's completely different, but insurance wasn't covering intensive outpatient because you weren't sick enough if you had an eating disorder. It Only if you could go into a facility, then they would cover it. And so it was like this whole other issue, like the burden of having being on my parents' insurance and having them have to take care of me. And I was an adult at the time. And I was like, no, like, I don't know. <laughs> and um, I think that one of the, the best things that has come out of all of this is having been part of that time when insurance wasn't covering the intensive outpatient. I mean, the pandemic has brought up some stuff and the lack of control that we all have at this point and what that means and what that looks like and how people are turning to food. And I would say this year for the holidays was extremely challenging for me. And I reached out and I mean, as I said, it's all part of the process and part of the journey, but I do intensive outpatient now through Zoom. And it's been like the best thing because I now have this group of people who understand like I'm six weeks later, such in a different place, so happy, but I knew it was bad because I was waking up every morning, running multiple miles before work, not eating very much, and then sleeping part of the day, waking up after a nap and going on another run. And I was like, this is how I learned to cope. And like, this is not a healthy coping mechanism. And Mm -hmm. that's what I want to share with people is that because we're human, just because you have a shortcoming or just because you feel like you're going backwards, it doesn't mean you can't go forward again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so important about my story is that it can resonate with so many people, especially during this time, because there is, number one, people aren't alone in this. It is a very lonely disease and it is something that is very personal to everybody who goes through it. But there are many people going through it and it's okay. It, it really is okay to get help, even if you think that you're at a good place. Right. And I think, again, it just, as bad as COVID's been, you know, I think you just said that so beautifully that, again, a disorder, a disease, an addiction, it's a lonely place and you feel out of control. And so many of us that aren't struggling with that are feeling that same way and have since March, you know, we feel out of control and we're looking at other things to self-soothe ourselves. And I love what you said that just because you're going back doesn't mean that you can't go forward. And there are 
like you have found things that, and we talk about on this podcast about your tool belt, you know, you got to find the things in life that you can stick in your tool belt. And when you need them, you pull them out. If it's a 12 step program, if it's pulling out your paintbrush, if it's pulling out your journal, if it's getting on the phone with your friend or your sponsor or whoever that is, or taking the dog for a walk or, you know, going for a walk instead of a run, you know, you've got to find those things that help. But again, you said it so beautifully that in a pandemic, it's so similar to what people go through when they're in these disorders. And, and it's okay. Again, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to fall back. It's okay to reach for help. And I'd love that. Even though you go backwards, you can go, you can go forwards. And I think I know that it's hard to watch others struggle and go, you're just supposed to go forward. Why are you going back? And I don't know, again, you alluded to it a little bit, but just that, like, what has helped you to make sure that you're facing in the right direction, you're going that way, as opposed to saying, I'm going backwards, it's messed up, like, I'm just going to fall back. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to pinpoint those, what is making me keep going, because I feel like sometimes I have to explain to people, um, like as I'm finishing up a grad program right now, which I started in quarantine and I'll end it in quarantine and I'll have my master's and people keep asking me, well, what are you going to do once you have your master's? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I woke up today. I, I am taking today as it is. Like I don't need to project. This is something I learned in my recovery the first time. I was having such an issue with projecting so much into my future that I was missing out on the right now. And a lot of people in addictions are not only escaping the right now, but they're trying to escape their past. Thing is, is the past already happened and we have no idea what's going to happen even five minutes from now. And so really, this is the only time we have. And just this, the few like couple months that I have really started again to work on myself and work on getting myself to a, a healthier place. I'm like, well, maybe I'll use that master's and be more of a, an advocate in mental health and an advocate for people who don't, haven't found their voice, know that they need that extra support. Just being okay with being okay. Like I, being okay with being okay. And then, cause I saw you, like, I know people can't see you, but struggling, like, what am I supposed to say? Like being okay, that you don't know what the future holds mm-hmm. that, right. You're making choices today. You're present here and you know that life will lead you to where you are supposed to go and it will unravel. I mean, I was reading a book recently about playing big and like one of them was, you know, one of the chapters was about fear and I know a lot about fear and keeping fear, keeping you stuck. But I loved uh, how they talked about the couple of different types of fears that they talk about in the, in the old Testament, but the fear that, and I don't remember the words exactly, but um, you know, the fears that constrict you and the fears that like can open you up. And that just really, it really spoke to me because it was like, yeah, sometimes fear is just really like we just stay inside. Right. And we're just so afraid. And then there's some fears that if we push past the fear, it really takes us to like, again, it opens up the rest of our life type of thing. And um, just being willing to get, you know, again, get through those fears and being okay to not know what the future holds, but just being, like you said, being present for, for today. Yeah. And I really, I really feel like going through this whole process, I've really realized how interconnected every human being, every actual life 
form is, is connected to each other. And I mean, you can look at it from a very basic level of like how food is fueled to keep going. But in reality, when you become vulnerable and you put yourself out there, somebody either hears your story and it can relate to it, or it connects you with somebody from your past that didn't know you were going through that. And they were going through something similar. And like COVID has done a really strange, interesting, beautiful thing by reconnecting me with some friends that I've had since I was a child. And we've opened up a lot of different parts of ourselves that, I mean, we were a lot of, a few of my friends, we would see each other daily. They were like my best friends growing up, but none of us knew any of these things that were going through us internally. And now we're like, oh my gosh, if we were only at this place when we were that young, we wouldn't have had a falling out for 14 years, but we needed that time to figure it out. And because we've gone through it and because we've worked through it, we're now able to reconnect at this point in our adult lives. And just like, it's like this unspoken connectedness. And mm-hmm. within addiction and within disease, it's all this, it's all part of the same disease and schema. It just manifests itself differently. And a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers have these explorations of drugs and alcohol, which then can lead them down a really dark rabbit hole when another kid or an adolescent can be using food to cope. And the only real difference is the, uh, the addictions with alcohol and drugs. Those are addictions that if you stop, you'll get better. But with food, if you stop, you die. Mm-hmm. And it's that there's something so profound in that, that when you really look at it, like that's when people within recovery and any sort of addiction or cycle where they could be falling backwards within old patterns, recognize that there is a connectedness between all of this. Mm-hmm. And it is a way of coping. And it's a way by telling your story or listening to somebody else's story that again, you're not alone in this journey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very true. Um, let's talk about your poetry. I mean, you started writing, but um, I know you started writing poetry too. And um, how did that come about? Or, you know, I know that you've done something with that poetry. So tell, you know, tell the audience what you've done with all that poetry. And maybe you can even share some of your poetry with us. So I had been writing like short stories and streams of consciousness before I knew what streams of consciousness were as a kid. And then somehow it morphed into poetry and rhyming poetry at that and literally everything I was doing. I could turn a TV show into a poem. I could turn watching somebody drink coffee into a poem, but I began to chronicle my recovery 10 years ago through poetry. And I believe I touched upon this very briefly, but at that time, um, my best friend was doing her own exploration with hardcore drugs. And her and I used to write together as kids and I would see her often. And my eating disorder mind would want would tell me I needed to be as small as her and she was a junkie. And like, so I would write all of what I was feeling through poetry and through my recovery. And I chronicled all of it um, in 120 pieces. And a mental health publisher found me and asked if I could send 
about eight pieces so they can look at it. And I was like, I have a manuscript of 150. And they were like, oh, <laughs> and I ended up getting a book deal and it was pretty great. The book is titled The Hunger and I mean, naturally fitting. And it just chronicles all the different parts of my journey through recovery. So addiction and what that was like through my eyes, watching somebody close to me going through their addiction body image, spirituality, still being extremely career-driven. And then as a sociology and ethnic studies major, I studied a lot about like societal triggers. So there's an entire chapter about societal triggers all through poetry. And the book got published. A week after it got published, the publisher went under. But what, what happened in my head was I was like, I sat on this poetry for 10 years and then it needed to come out. So, I mean, it's still out, but I don't have a publisher anymore. But it was one of those things like the universe knew it needed to come out at that time. And I Mm -hmm. highly, like, I am such an opportunist in the sense of something comes into your life for a reason, I, I strongly believe. And things just happen and they unfold the way they're supposed to. And even if you don't know why they're unfolding or why they stop unfolding, you don't need to know that at this point as you're going through it. But the reason was that somebody somewhere needed to read those poems at that time. It got out there. They read them. What, whatever it did to them, great. But it's out there. So I could have just like totally gone the other way and been like, oh, there's no more. I don't have a publisher. I'm not going to self-publish this. And I didn't because I was like, somebody somewhere needs this needs to relate to this poetry. So I have been still writing. I actually have, I've written a follow-up, but I think that the original pieces I had chosen for it, I'm not sure if I want those to be my next poems that I put out. So I have, I've written about 300 pieces since that book came out. And so I'm now just trying to put, put them in order of what I want out next, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any that you're, are your favorites or you'd like to share with us? Yeah. So going back to um, not knowing if I'd wake up in the morning and like, it was such a lonely place and not knowing how to explain to people how I was feeling, having sat in a bunch of different 12 step meetings, I was just in my head all the time. So I wrote this piece. I am your disease. You think you like the way you feel, but you only excuse my symptoms to escape from what is real. I am your disease. Ultimately, you will die looking down from the heavens as you watch your loved ones cry. I am your disease turned on when you are out of touch. I could truly care less why you hurt so much. I am your disease. Happy when you give in. You care more about me than your own kin. I am your disease living in your head. I will live in someone else's even when you're dead. Wow. So that's in my book. I have some new ones that I have recently written, but I want to read one more from the first book and then I'll read you a couple new ones. It's a feeling I get and I can't explain. If I don't do something about it, I feel the pain. If I give into the disease, I live in vain. It's a feeling I get and I can't explain. All day I'm harassed by these thoughts. In a vicious cycle, I am caught. Between what is healthy and what can be deadly, I am strapped for consciousness from what society has fed me. It's so true. (laughs) I mean, you speak the truth. You speak the truth for sure. This last one, 
I also wrote, this is in my first book. It's called Dear Bill after all the 12 step programs. Hmm. An addiction resides deeper than one can perceive. It starts in the mind and fights not to leave. For all who host the perpetual deceit, remember, we all struggle to name the manifestation of the same disease. Okay, so I wrote this. This was actually pre-COVID, but like right before COVID. I think it had a lot to do with like the disarray of the state of where the world was and not knowing what was going to happen with the pandemic. If we were going to shut down, Italy had already been shut down at this point. And I remember I had gone out to get something to eat for myself. And I was just sitting there with the food and I like couldn't eat it. And I had just watched, I'm obsessed with true crime. And I had just watched a Ted Bundy special. Like a serial killer, I'm obsessing over my next victim trolling favorite spots until I'm ready to make a move, plotting my attack. I play the movie in my head, how I will sneak up and cover my tracks. It's sickening, yet truthful. I get the same rush from food as Ted Bundy, his prey. The high of the first bite, savoring each slice. Disturbingly, I compare the two. Then I purge, similarly to hiding the remains. If no one finds out, is there a problem? If everyone knows, is it accepted? Society is sick. So are these thoughts. I shall murder them too. Wow. This is one of my most recent ones. It's just a walk, nothing more. Not purging food from the night before. It's just a run to start the day. Not a compulsion to keep the feelings at bay. It's only a bite, fuel for the body. If I eat right now, later I'll be sorry. It's not just a walk or a run or a bite. It's a disease some of us fight. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, it's really good. And I, I mean, I, again, I commend you for finding uh, a way that, um, that you can express yourself and that it's a, a form of, of healing, you know, for you, we've talked many times that unfortunately we'd like these disorders and diseases to just be gone in a, in a day and a snap of the finger and they really aren't. And so again, you talk about that this has been a 10 year journey chronicling your recovery and there's still, there's still room for healing. There's still room for more. And, um, and so wonderful for you, similar like this podcast is really partly for me, but it's also, again, you can share that, you can share that poetry with others so that others can f- say like, yeah, she understands and um and look at her she's she's farther along than i am and i can look at that and they can look at you as a as a living example of how you can recover and get through that so now are there books available if people since they're i don't know how that works if they're the publisher's not around i mean are books available for people to buy or can anybody find that you can get it on amazon either a hard copy on amazon or you can get it Kindle edition as well. Um, okay. The hunger and my name is Rachel Freeman. So you just look. Yeah. Look yeah. I'll put those in the, I'll put that in the show notes too. So people will be able to, to find that. Um, I just, as we kind of close up, um, I don't know if this is a short subject or a long subject, but just because I usually ask about, I mean, you are obviously a strong independent woman and you've gone on and, but you'd mentioned your mother, a little bit there. I mean, and I know that this is a disorder that does impact the family. Can you speak a little bit to that? I mean, was that something that was went along good or, you know, were there struggles or? Yeah. I mean, it has definitely been a struggle. It's something 
that I have felt throughout a lot of my life. I mothered my mom more than she mothered me, if that makes sense. And so I think part of that control in my food and what I was eating was had a lot to do with like the lack of control or nutritional support per se. Ironically, my mom's a health teacher. And so that that's a whole other level. But there's something to be said about the the validation of it could have all started prior to, I mean, I remember my mom called the school counselor when I was in eighth grade and told the counselor that she thought I had an eating disorder. My mom never addressed it with me. Um, I didn't know where that was coming from because I also knew that, I mean, obviously my parents were the ones buying me this slim fast at the time. And the thing is, I can't, I've, I've gotten to a place in my recovery where, yes, I question certain things that have happened or certain things about the relationship, but I, I can't fault the patterns that they followed or the things that my mom or dad did or didn't do because that's just what they knew. And that's what they thought they were doing to help me. And I've had to let go a lot of those, like, well, if only they did this instead, or if only they, instead of driving me and physically being present, if they were emotionally present, because there, it, that's a, that's a whole issue about capacity and what somebody can and hold, cannot hold space for. And I'm aware of that because I've done the work for that, but I can't, I can't be upset that they weren't there and didn't show up in the ways that I needed because also not to, not to fault myself in any way, because I didn't have the knowledge or experience, but I, I never actually said what I needed either. And I, so I think it goes both ways. And I think it's really easy when you are in the midst of an addiction or a disease, like an eating disorder to blame everybody else. And by no means am I victimizing myself in this, but it's part of, it goes back to some of that poetry. It's like part of what society has told you to do. And we're just conditioned to do certain things. And at the end of the day, parents do the best they can with what they have. And it did scare my mom the first time I told her I needed therapy. And I remember we were driving to my first therapy session when I was in middle school. And she's like, I thought I knew who you were. But I was like, I don't even know who I am. So how would you know who I am? And I mean, yeah, I, I, does, are there issues there? Yes. But I'm at a place where I have to take care of myself and not worry about what could or could not have been done then. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing, um, if I can just say, is that you've created some boundaries for yourself on how you choose to you know, just created those boundaries and how you choose to care for yourself and what you choose to, again, think about or hold on to. And, you know, we've, again, mentioned this before in the podcast that there are generational patterns that that go on from year to year. And like you said, and I can say that for myself as a mother, you know, we do the best we can knowing that that's, I mean, that's just what we, what we know. And we can live in that, well, I should have, could have, or my parents should have, would have, whatever done this, or we can choose to, like you said earlier, be present and just love your life and love what you have now. And, um, you know, have that, 
that self-care and those boundaries to take care of yourself now and figuring out what you want of your life now. So I think it's, I think that's great. And um, yeah, I feel like you're somebody that we could just sit and talk for a long time. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that again, we could chat about. And I, this is my first time meeting you. And I feel like you're a very, very wise woman. And uh, really, I'm honored to be connected with you. Um, you know, anytime really, you, you want me back anytime you want me to talk yeah. to your daughter. I'm, I'm here. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And again, I hope the listeners, I'm sure the listeners um, got a lot out of this. But just as we talked about, you know, um, just that identity piece and finding things that I guess slowing down enough to know who you are. And I heard you say many times, like, don't be afraid to ask for help. And that we're all struggling. We've all got a story. We've all got stuff. We all got shit. I always say that's like, you know what? But it's okay. We're all connected. And um, if we're just brave enough to open up and share and ask for a little bit of help or share in poetry or art, I love that. Um, I feel like if it's art, music, uh, poetry, you know, whatever, dance, it's, it's just a beautiful form of expression that can really create a lot of healing. So I have last poem I'd like to read that it just when you said intergenerational patterns yeah yeah let's yeah let's finish with a poem and uh, as we finish up this time another systemic issue higher levels of virtue this one not involving institutions rather coupled by the third eye and the mind's illusions old lessons stirred by karmic resurrection are pushing buttons every behavior has a function unresolved problems intergenerational traumas Actions disentangled, proactively remaining strangled. Unless the energetic cord is cut, the metaphoric suitcase must be shut. Retrain the mind-body system that it is safe. The next step you must take. That's nice. It's beautiful. It's a great way to finish off today. So again, thank you, Rachel. Um, thank you for sharing with us today in the audience. And um I loved hearing it and I'm sure that the audience did as well. And uh, again, you'll know how to connect with Rachel um, in the show notes, uh, reach out to her. I'll um, put her connections there as well as the way that she can get her poetry. If you'd like to do that as well. And again, um, I think lots of messages here, but you know, take care of yourself. Know that um, when we, when we feel like we're out of control, that's perhaps just a little sign that um, we need a little bit of help. And um, as I talked to somebody earlier today, help can just be a form of support. You know, find a 12-step program, find a friend to talk to, find a dog to cuddle with, a good book to read, or open a page of a book, write some of those feelings down. And, um, and at the end of the day, there's hope for being in a space of loving your life. And um, again, we'll talk to you next time. Again, thanks for coming back and listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. 
And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.